put my boxing gloves on. <laughs> Let's kick it off because, like you said, there's a lot of people that are either on Kubernetes or moving to Kubernetes, and data is a bit of a question mark. So we are having a round two because Patrick and I spoke, what was it, in July or, yeah, July. It feels like that and quarantine time feels like a lot longer than that. But we were able to talk about this question of is Kubernetes even ready for data? And so today we decided to bring along another smart person. We've got Patrick's expertise and we've also brought along Jeffrey to the ball game or to this uh, round two. And what we want to do is explore this idea more because there are people, I think we should just go out and say it right now that the, uh, the quintessential messiah of Kubernetes, you know, Kelsey Hightower is screaming from the mountaintops that we shouldn't be doing state on Kubernetes. But as I've talked to more and more people, there's a lot of people that are doing it and they're able to do it well. It is, there are just a, a few snags that you have to be aware of and so what I wanted to do today is really explore this because if we just listen to Kelsey Hightower, then we would all have to figure out some other way, right? And we, would, we wouldn't have advanced this conversation at all. But now we've been able to advance it. We've seen that there are some really cool things happening and I wanna explore that today. I wanna to go deeper into it. And so we'll use some of the stuff that we talked about uh, those many moons ago with Patrick and I, and we're going to introduce new ideas and new topics, uh, of course. So that is my spiel. I think we should just start maybe by surveying and getting like a pulse check from Jeffrey and Patrick. And Patrick has being the returning champ, maybe you can go first on it, of what I'm talking about with this, you know, like, there's people that are saying we shouldn't do stateful and we shouldn't be running data on Kubernetes. And how do you feel about that? I know that you had some strong opinions the last time we talked, so I'd love to get where you're at right now. Yeah, you know, it's funny because I've been talking to Kelsey too and um, he, he's very much against it, but I think he's also thinking in terms of um, uh, cloud native is about composability and thinking of stateful workflows almost as like, shoving a square peg into a round hole you know you're like if you're gonna just take your bulk version of your stateful workload and just try to shoehorn it into kubernetes yeah i agree that's a pretty bad idea so what's been happening um i mean there's a project we're looking at like uh, the patchy cassandra project we're looking at like okay what is it that you know sometimes it's not all about like no kubernetes get it together get, <laughs> it's like you, come on, man, we're here with our thing that's just perfect. It's not that, it's like, I think there's a real interest in um, making changes to like a, a database like Cassandra because it's a Dynamo-based system. And Dynamo was built with this idea of, of commodity backends and what do we, in connecting those. The Dynamo model is way more about how you create distributed systems and uh, consistent data than a specific implementation. <laughs> and so I think that it will change quite a bit um, over time. Cassandra is, uh, we're getting ready to ship 4.0 here shortly. 
Um, if you haven't seen all the hype, it's amazing. But <laughs> 4.0, post 4.0, I think you're going to see a lot of um, head scratching. It's like, not even that. It's going to be a lot of movement around mm -hmm. making changes to Cassandra that will fit the deployment model. And the reason I say that is it's not because, you know, it's, well, we're just going to try to follow the hype train. It's, it's this massive we found that 60% of the Cassandra deployments are in shops that are also heavily Kubernetes. Mm. And, but they're not running Cassandra in Kubernetes. Mm -hmm. So that's, a, and, and it's only growing. Yeah. So this is paying attention. It's not just following along with the, you know, doing our thing. Yeah. So it's, it's a different energy for sure. Um, but it's, and then it's like, the what do we compose? What do we bring in the composability? And so Jeffrey and I, we actually just talked last week about this. <laughs> um, you're like, what do you bring to the party? Yeah, coincidentally, um, the conversations are pretty pretty intense. Um, next week at KubeCon, you're going to see a lot more of that, I'm sure. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, so I, yeah, actually, a couple of things I, I would like to uh, touch upon. So, so first of all, there, there is no such thing as stateless, right? Because the, the I mean, from a computer perspective and, and probably not having a state could be considered a state as well if you really wanna get into the weeds. But I think the, the differentiation is, is that there might be state that you do not necessarily care about. And that means that you can either regenerate it typically with uh, CICD pipelines, for example. So you can compile the source code again into the binary artifacts or the ramifications are not all that big. So um, let's say that I'm shopping uh, on Amazon and I'm, I'm clicking together something and you know the site crashes or the backend that I'm routed to crashes. And you know the worst thing that can happen is that I need to reread my cookies, which is stateful, um, or I have to you know um, put my shopping bag uh, all the way from scratch, which is not that big of a deal. Uh, really. So I, I, I think that there is always state, just, just, you know, what state do you care about? And I think that when you look at cloud native applications, these type of things are, are important to consider. And the other thing uh, Patrick mentioned uh, was, was composability. And, and that to me indeed is key um, with storage. And because there, is, there, there should really be no reason to manage your storage any different than you manage an application through Kubernetes if you would argue that storage is just another application when it comes to what it does with, with the bits and bytes. And sure, eventually there is this device um, that stores the data, but other than that, for the most part, um, it, it's software, uh, I would say. And um, so the, the, the trick is going to be trying to find composability such that individual developers can, uh, through declarative intent, make clear what they expect from the persistent layer, whatever that is, um, and have give them the flexibility to decide what is best for that particular workload. And um, I think that uh, with OpenEBS, that's, that's well, we, we, we try several things, but one of the things that, that um, I try to uh, sometimes, I, or at least try to explain is that um, if you look at what Kubernetes tries to do is abstract away the underlying compute and, and just have the developer focus on deploying the application. Um, with OpenEBS, we try to do the same for storage where we abstract away the underlying storage and where the developer just can focus on the PVC, um, if you will. So, um, and in terms of, is it ready? Um, I think it is, um, but 
I, I do feel that um, it's not for the faint of heart, I would say, because, uh-huh. you know, how you twist and turn it, Kubernetes is, is um, you know, it gets getting used to, uh, let's put it like that. And, and storage doesn't necessarily make that easier. So picking the right software, picking the right community, uh, I guess, is, is probably uh, fundamental uh, when you make these type of choices. So big words coming hot out the gates, Jeffrey, <laughs> saying there's no such thing as stateless. Yeah, no, and, absolutely not. There it doesn't exist. It's, it's, uh, and yeah. then I like, I like the reverse, uh, what is it? The reverse psychology on it. Like, yeah, it's ready, but not unless you got some cojones. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it, you know, it, 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 yeah, it, I was going to say it's, it's, it's not stateless so much as it's ephemeral. I, I like to use the word ephemeral more just for my cloud background. It, you know, when we say stateless, sure there's there's a component to that especially with web servers like you know things come and go but ephemeral is probably a better way of describing it meaning you know it can just disappear and that's okay we can regenerate it databases aren't quite that way (laughs) right but nonetheless it is it is a certain form of state you know you can you don't necessarily uh have a disaster if you lose it but um yeah so indeed and um and if if you look for example um, in particular, so I, I have some some experience with Cassandra, and I think it's been a while, but I think it was version three or something like that. Um, but if you, for example, t- look at composability, right? Let's say that you that you want to deploy Cassandra through Kubernetes, and one of the things that Cassandra has uh, done very well, and I'm not actually sure if if they had that before Kubernetes, I would be. I would not be surprised if they it's actually day did. one. Yes. Yes, but the, 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 the policy awareness, right? That that is baked very deeply inside um, Cassandra. Um, but um, even though that that when you configure Cassandra, you have several options, and you you can configure it very complex. You configure it very simple. Um, but there are there is this thing of storage that you need to consider. So for example, you have different types of data that Cassandra generates. Um, and you could argue that if you want to have to commit log on a faster device within Kubernetes, you need to somehow some way tell the system that, hey, Cassandra, I would like to have my data on, on this type of PVC and my commit log on this type of PVC. And so you need to have that composability uh, regardless. And, and I think that providing the, the abstraction at compute and storage, um, I, I don't necessarily think that you can uh, do without, you have to have it, or, or you don't necessarily have to have it, but you would paint yourself in a corner rather quickly um, if you don't. And then there are, uh, I've been in situations where people had Cassandra uh, systems and they were pretty happy with it. And although that they understand and, and uh, fully grok the fact that Cassandra can handle data replication uh, very well, they still uh, wanted to, uh, for certain cases, use a rate set underneath the data that Cassandra stored. And um, well, if you want to do that just to sleep easier at night, you know, there should be a way for you to express that when you compose the PVCs uh, for the Cassandra deployment that you put in the cluster. So I think composability- well, Yeah, the typical set rate set configuration is more for speed, like whenever you have a bunch of crappy disks, you ah, want to do like a raid one right and yeah. so um yeah that's that's actually been a, a really strong guidance for like if you're running spinning disk because mm-hmm. that's how you keep up latency and uh throughput 
whenever right. you have a 7200 rpm disc underneath yeah these things are dock slow right so yeah exactly and 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 the um uh but 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 talking about speed um which is another thing to consider and and i think that uh, if you look at modern day uh, computer systems and what i think that uh, cloud native or uh, cloud native deployments or new applications, however you want to phrase it. I think the upside there is that you have the opportunity to get rid of a whole lot of legacy. Um, so for example, we, we just said, you know, uh, slow RPM drives. These days you can get huge NVMe SSDs, for example, with a high capacity, which are relatively cheap. And some argue that they're uh, better for the environment as well. So you probably can get some, uh, some funding for that as well. But the, um, if you look at how those devices are built, you also would, would need to rethink how you saturate these devices. Because if you just grab your database that you created, I don't know, several years ago and just put an NVMe device underneath and expect things to go faster, it will to a certain extent, but you won't max it out because the hardware changes are so big that it requires certain software changes. Um, and you can see these things happening with, uh, uh, I think Cassandra was, was in Java, if I'm not mistaken. So uh, this, what, what's it called? Neo, uh, new IO for Java. It's this native interface to, because it's a VM, so it doesn't have direct hardware access and this allows it to do it. Um, but in any case, they, they, they use this new, uh, kernel subsystem IOU ring and the performance of the same application, but just using it differently, uh, increased 300%, right? Just by changing um, the way that you submit the IO uh, to the system through uh, the whole software stack. So all these things combined really require you to rethink, um, you know, how you can um, get the biggest bang of the, uh, you know, out of your buck, if you will, from a hardware perspective and, and, uh, and in, in the end, in cloud native environments that translates to costs, which you guys will be talking about uh, next week, as if I recall correctly, right? So less is more when it comes to that. Um, and and if, it's, if it's faster, then it's also it's like, okay, well, does it really matter that I need to rebuild a terabyte of data? Well, if it's a slow device, then yes. If it's a super fast device and you can do point-to-point -point RDMA access between the devices, eh, probably not, right? So there are, are a lot, a lot of things to consider um, when you when you build these uh, new uh, cloud-native applications. And um, yeah, composability for sure. That's how it how I started. Um, is very very important, I think. Very good. Starting with a very, very strong quote from Jeffrey that will be remembered for a long time. There is no such thing as stateless. Now, moving it over to a very famous quote from Patrick, slightly different, but let's see what we can get out of this. Patrick famously said, friends don't let friends shard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Patrick, I don't, know, I, don't know, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if that was from 2020 or if this predates this conversation, but maybe you can fill us in a little bit about that. And then let's see where we can take this. Yeah, no, I mean, sharding your database. Come on, I, I did that in what, 2005, and that was cool then. I did a talk on that. It was cool. 2008, it was uncool. So, yeah, moving on. Um, sharding, yeah, sharding databases makes me sad because you just started putting all kinds of weird application logic in your database at the weirdest layer, which is the middle layer. And it, it, if you've ever worked with sharded databases, then 
you know, you realize quickly that, that you're building technical debt so fast. It's like a high interest credit card. You're just like, I'm never going to pay this off. Um, so, you know, this is actually why I got started with Cassandra in the first place, because I was in this, this game of sharding MySQL and Oracle databases at such a rate that it was like unsustainable. And I was watching my friends at Facebook trying to figure out how to make it shard. And they were modifying binaries in MySQL to make it work because they couldn't do updates on their database. And I'm like, guys, this is stupid. Why are you doing this? And that's actually, that was in 2008, 2009 that we were starting to talk about NoSQL databases. And like, wait a minute, there's gotta be a different way to do this. So getting you know trying to glue these topics together because you know this is data on kubernetes it's like we're that that problem is not going to go away um when i see projects in kubernetes and databases that are just make sharding a lot easier i'm just like why are you pouring gas on the fire <laughs> i mean this is you're trying to make this ancient old technology this clunker come in and look cool it ain't gonna happen you got to use the right you know use the modern database for the modern deployment tool um, if you're, if you think, if you think that the old thing that from 40 years ago is going to work from you, for you, uh, you're going to be really disappointed in 10 years. Trust me, because now it's 50 years old. <laughs> um, so that's, I mean, I, I think of like where I, I help a lot of our people in our community when they, when they realize that they never have to shard their data again, and that they have a database that'll elastically grow and shrink and can scale how they need to without any downtime. I mean, it's like a gift. I'm like, here you go. <laughs> I mean, this, I didn't build it, but I talk about it, here you go. Um, and right now, I think that's where operators are, SREs were with Kubernetes is when they're seeing like, oh, I could just do a kube cuddle, grow my cluster, shrink it, and it all kind of works together. Now I could, maybe I can focus on different things like, you know, my business, because <laughs> it's really a struggle right now in COVID times. Um, I saw a study that productivity is up like 6% during the pandemic. I mean, that's crazy. Um, and it's just because every business is struggling to figure out how to stay valid and, and online. That's the thing, digital transformation. Um, hey, nerds, we kind of won this one. Um, I hate to I hate to say like there's winners in a pandemic, but nerds win because this is look at everyone in the world is trying to figure out how to go online with everything. New iPhone 12. Let me just see the circle. <laughs> well, I, I like um, uh, that's yeah. I like what you're saying there. Kind of ranting a little bit there. Oh but no, no, yeah, that here we are. One. That was a good one. That's a good one. <laughs> what I'm wondering about is the since we do have a uh, storage guy and a database guy here on the the call and in the room we can say in this virtual space that we've created one of my go-to questions that has just been coming up over and over again and it's been put in slack a few times is how who should control the replication and jeffrey kind of pointed to this earlier and i want to know maybe jeffrey you can start us off with this one but like is it should I replicate both on the storage layer and the database layer? And, or should I just leave it to one? What does that look like? And how do I not like over replicate? Right. Uh, well, I think it, it, it I, I don't necessarily think that there's a, a like uh, a perfect answer necessarily um, because you, you can replicate 
for reasons other than uh, availability, right? Um, so it's not not to say that people replicate because the database can't keep its act together. Absolutely not. There can be other valid reasons. Um, but typically, however, if you have a database that is uh, good at what it does and allows you to um, effectively per, per table define what type of replication you want and whatnot, there's, there is no need to do uh, replication at a storage level uh, because the database does it a lot better um, and, and also has more control over the data itself and can optimize caching and whatnot, what storage can never do in the sense that it, it doesn't have context. It doesn't it just sees a stream of bits and bytes, but it doesn't know what it actually is looking at. So, um, however, if you uh, have such a database and you want to, for example, um, get some additional speed or redundancy just to avoid the need for rebalancing or things like that, um, then you might be able to say, okay, well, let me put a simple mirroring or, or whatever uh, on top of that, um, but, or underneath that, um, just to, you know, make things more simple or to, for example, say, um, this hardware is now out of service, I need to, uh, you know, replace it, and, and you don't necessarily want to, um, you know, uh, what, what's, the, what's the phrase? Um, well, you, you don't want to taunt the gods, right? It's like, yeah, it should work, but, uh, you know, let me just hot swap the, the device out. Uh, that would be, uh, you know, simpler. Sure. So, yeah, so, uh, but but from, so there, like I said, so there can be different reasons why you want to do it, um, but from a data, data availability aspect, if the database is sound, then you don't necessarily uh, need to do that. But I do feel that the composability is, is, is mandatory uh, within uh, uh, Kubernetes. We have, for example, a customer that um, wants to, uh, doesn't want to have replication, but if the machine crashes, crashes where the disks are, he wants the ability to pick up the disk, if you will, and move it somewhere else on another node where the application can start. So that's not replication, right? That is composability. So how do you do that? Even though there's no replication, you still want to be able to lift and shift, if you will, um, the, the storage to another uh, Kubernetes node where the application can restart. Um, so I, yeah, I hope that answers your question uh, somewhat. For sure. And I, I imagine Patrick's also got some thoughts on this. What do you, what do you want to say? <laughs> well, what I've always said, um, it's your, if you're replic, if you're thinking about data, your database should be managing the replication because you're, you're asking for a certain amount of consistency. Um, and the database is the only arbitrator of that. So if you need something that's, you need a guarantee that something is stored on disk or is committed to correctly to the database, um, the database is the one to tell you that. And so that's a, that's a, that actually really goes back to the Dynamo database model, like what the Dynamo, the original Dynamo paper from 2008. Um, when you talk about consistency of data and replication, it's not about the movement of data, it's about where is my data and is it there? Um, so yeah, I, I have worked with Cassandra users in the past that have used like really, really expensive like SANS, you know, like these big symmetric multi-million dollar arrays. I'm like, you don't need to do that. You know, that, that's like the department of redundancy department and the only person happy is your EMC store, uh, EMC sales. Yeah, person. yeah, exactly, yeah. So, you know, they, 
and when I when I and, and that makes sense when you're running something like Oracle because you get one, and if that one goes down, you're totally screwed. And so you know that's that's why you want to do that. You want to create this distributed database to avoid that problem. Um, when it comes to you know rep, what what makes me sad is when I see people using like DBRD to replicate the block storage with Cassandra, and I'm like, uh, you just you're wasting bits at this point. Um, you know, it's interesting. Um, one of the things that replication is creating, though, is uh, an interest, a fascinating way to do backups, and you know, keeping snapshots of data, um, and that that's more of like a regulatory issue right now that we're shifting the need for this. So, financial data, for instance, they need a snapshot in time. Um, as Kubernetes is starting to move into regulated um, entities like financial services. Uh, there's questions about all right how do we how do we make sure that we have a snapshot in time that shows like some sort of state of our data at a certain moment and um that, that's when you start getting into like okay so then we snapshot our data it's that's that's a certain set of data that needs to be replicated into slower tiered storage because i'm not going to pay premium ssd price for data that i'm probably never going to look at ever again <laughs> until you know the regulator shows up and says can we see that and I'm like oh, okay yeah. <laughs> there, we'll we'll go figure out how to chip it out of the iceberg <laughs> you know but um yeah that i think there's um we need to think differently this is this is a different place and uh when we talk about data on kubernetes we get all kinds of new primitives to work with Yeah, that's right, and I would agree with that. Although there, there is one. There are other uh, things, for example, that um, you might want to think about if you have, let's say, a set of nodes and and you run out of storage, right? And being able to dynamically uh, grow that um, without a, let's say virtualization layer between the actual physical devices and, and uh, what gets consumed by the database, um, that would be rather difficult, right? So um, I think that uh, other than replication, there, there are more things to consider uh, when it comes to that. Um, another thing, for example, is, well, I, I guess in Cassandra, it doesn't necessarily matter all that much, but certain databases uh, want to have a form of protection against uh, data corruption, for example. So it, it, it depends uh, in various ways. And, and some databases don't have replication at all, as far as I can tell. So yeah, what do you do? Well, you probably have to do some form of replication. And, and to me, replication perhaps is somewhat different than, than what you guys, I'm, I'm talking here about synchronous mirroring. In fact, really, it's like instead of, mm, yeah. instead of writing it to one, I write it to two. That, that to me is synchronous replication, if you will. So um, just to. Yeah. And with Cassandra, you're going to get that with right out of the coordinator and you're asking for a certain consistency level. Right. So if you have three replicas, you could say, I'd like a quorum, right? And it will give you, it will return. Like I've committed this data to 51% of the replicas properly mm. um, and it won't return that that positive until that happens, which, you know, this is a part of that, the, the part of Kubernetes that I think is really important is that um, the resilient self-healing part uh, that, you know, that it's just not optional anymore. And um, we, we need to be able to withstand failure. Um, power turns off, networks get partitioned, <laughs> 
sysadmins turn off things inadvertently. I don't know anyone who did it. <laughs> I may not have done that ever. <laughs> oh, is that a switch? Oh, I turned that off by mistake. My bad. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. There's actually like, yeah, like, like, yeah, like fat finger, a whole cluster uh, reboot. Oops. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh man, back in here's my back in the day story. This is when I was running. Uh, I was running data centers for a company, and so we had multiple just racks and racks and racks of equipment on all these different data centers back before we were really into cloud. Thank God for cloud. And I, and I as the boss guy I show up, I'm going to help them move. We were going to be moving racks of equipment, like entire racks. And they're like, oh, you want to help out? Well, we need to de-energize. We need to pull the power off of these racks over here. Well, I didn't quite get the finger point where he was pointing. And I walked over to a the main rack that had like the Cisco routers for the incoming bits. And I went over to the big old 208 volt twist lock and just chunk pulled it out. And like the entire room got quiet and everyone just looked at me and they're like, you just brought us all the way down. And so Oops. can I just put it back in? <laughs> no. <laughs> so, you know, that was when I realized it's not all about, you know, just, small things it's the big things when the idiot walks in the data center as a result i was never invited back into that data center but um you know network partitions are real yo <laughs> yeah 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 they have been and we don't need to point any fingers no and no no actually, at that point all my evaluations were a good job of keeping it online because i can't <laughs> yeah. well so there's a, a few things that i want to talk about off of that like the tail end of that and one is I mean, the importance of chaos engineering and what is coming out. I know, Jeffrey, you're doing cool stuff with um, Litmus Chaos. There's stuff going on there. And the importance of just what you're talking about, Patrick, like turning it off on purpose and seeing does it still work because it's no longer a nice to have, it's table stakes, right? And so that whole resilience and the ability to go through these power outages or these people turning things off. Uh, but really what comes to mind that I really wanna ask about is the idea of databases that were around before Kubernetes. And now, Patrick, you alluded to this, like you can't just shoehorn a database into Kubernetes because that's what we've been trying to do and it's not working that well. And so we need to go and we need to start thinking about things in the, the Kubernetes way, we could say, and then get the benefits of Kubernetes. And I remember last time that you were on here, you talked about how the parts that start to come into conflict are when you have, are the reasons you need operators, right? Like you start to create operators because, well, Cassandra will deal with its own resilience in its own way, but then Kubernetes also deals with resilience in its own way. And then those two, um, as our, our friend Paul put it, it's like two ambulances rushing to the scene of a crime or the scene of an accident, and they can't see each other. And they just end up running into each other and creating another accident, right? So this idea of creating like Kubernetes style databases is something I want to dive into. And also the idea of people want choices. And so like the, the loosely coupled idea, and this is where Jeffrey, I wanted you to chime in on this is because like 
giving people options, especially with storage and being able to say, well, you can do this, you can do that. You can have many different options because the teams are going to be smaller and they're going to be in the, this Kubernetes style also. So uh, I'll let you take a stab at that first, Patrick. And it, it wasn't necessarily a question. It's more of uh, just a theme that I'd like to dive into. Yeah, well, that was what I alluded to earlier is, you know, we're as a project, the, the Cassandra project is full of, <laughs> chock full of really good distributed systems engineers, which is a great thing. Um, and, and they're not just super zealous about one database. They're thinking about like, how do we do distributed systems properly? Kubernetes being one of them. Um, the, when I talk about composability, I think of the three parts of any uh, distributed application, which is network, compute, and storage, which is ironically exactly what every cloud will sell you. <laughs> you know, um, that's really only what they want to sell you is network, compute, and storage. Um, everything else is to get you to use more network, compute, and storage. <laughs> um, and that, that's what the breakdowns are. And, you know, it's interesting because that's what Jeffrey and I were talking about last week is, you know, there's every part, if you focus on every part and think about it in, in composable terms, like how are we going to make these work together? Um, you, you can think of things instead of just one tarball to deploy. Like Cassandra is not just an executable. Thinking about it in terms of like, here's different parts that need to be put together. We've started going down this route on the project. And I think this is going to be a progression that we do over time. The Dynamo model is actually the one thing that I makes the most sense because it is built kind of of cloud. Um, mm -hmm. The Dynamo model, of course, and I keep throwing out the Dynamo thing, but Dynamo, Dynamo DB paper was written, or sorry, the Dynamo paper was written by a group of engineers at, at Amazon in 2008. Um, a lot of people think that's where Dynamo DB came from. Nope, just name collision. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the Dynamo paper was around this idea of how do we distribute a database that um, is consistent and can be replicated um, and resilient. And it had to do with um, each node is shared nothing. And how do you manage that through the different bits of computer science? And if you look at that paper, it's really, it's an artful paper. There's 24 papers cited inside of that that go into things like how to manage quorum data, how to replicate, how to manage consistency in, in, in those kind of uh, situations, how to manage failure. Um, and what we have is this, is this availability, there's, there's this cap theorem, consistency, availability, and partition. Um, most databases up to that point were CP, consistency and, and um, I'm sorry, yes, yeah, CP databases where, you know, it's all about the consistency. And if you can't manage the consistency, then you don't do it. Sorry, you shut down. You just don't let any more things happen. Um, the Dynamo model changed everything to AP. It was uh, on availability and partition tolerance. So you can have like two data centers that don't see each other and still be able to do live reads and writes. Um, and that they'll rectify the data once you they're connected together. So there were several databases that went that route, React, Cassandra, Voldemort, which is a really cool name. Um, there's another one called Dynamite, which is hilarious. Um, but uh, there was a lot of databases that went that route. Cassandra is the one that's really kind of has survived <laughs> and, and moved forward. But that model is valid in a Kubernetes world. Because look at like when you do a deployment and you create all the parts 
you know, you're creating the, the ingress, the networking component, you're, you're creating the nodes, which is the compute component. And then you're creating the storage, which is, you know, that's the storage component, obviously. So I think this is where we are is like, okay, this is the next level. And that's where, um, when we bring in the, the people who can focus on those really interesting things, like what Jeffrey was talking about with storage, it's like, you know, PVCs are a hot mess. I think we could do better. <laughs> I tend to agree. <laughs> uh, Jeffrey, just really quickly, we got a, we got a question from a, a community member, Miguel, who uh, wants to know, cause you know, a lot of a topic that comes up a lot um, for us, whether it's it's any element uh, or area with this, this whole Kubernetes realm, is you know how to avoid vendor lock-in and talking about multi-cloud environments. And so Miguel's question is: Are there solutions to run databases in a multi-cloud federated manner? Uh, well, if, if if they're the same database within a different cloud provider, I would argue that that would be possible. Um, but uh, th that depends a little bit on on uh, so. Cloud is a new proprietary, right? So if, if you walk into the Amazon candy store, you get bombarded with all kinds of cool features that you know work straight out of the gate. Um, and before you know it, you're you're stuck and you can't go back. Um, so that that's that's dangerous. But if if you have a uh, a database that is you know uh, good enough uh, to run at multiple clouds and you can set up the networking and the VPNs and all the security and, and whatnot, then I think that would be would be possible. But I think it's also fair to say that there is no single database that serves all type of workloads, right? You have different types of data, you have different requirements of certain certain data. So so you, you again come come towards this composability aspect where you where you might want to uh, favor one database over the other because it's specifically built to handle time series data, for example, or whatever it is, right? And um, sometimes there are performance requirements that come into play where uh, you, you need, I don't know, one million IOPS from from a disk perspective to to achieve that. And so when when you look at the uh, how things are evolving, one of the things that make make databases um, very much in the early design phase of the database itself. Um, which will dominate where it will be good at is is the is the way that that they handle the uh, things like uh, compaction, consistency, and 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 type of stuff like that um, from at at the disk layer. And so, um, as you have different choices and different types of databases, they optimize for particular types of data and and things like that. But um, when you look at the NVMe space, for example, what you see happening now is, is this uh, key value store uh, SSDs, where instead of having the, the, the software uh, do all the hard work in, in trying to not emulate, that would be a wrong word, but implement uh, key value types, um, they, they, you can do that with, with the NVMe devices uh, straight away. And, that gives the opportunity for the database vendors to optimize again for what a database is really all about, and that is indexing, searching, and, and things like that, right? So um, I think that, again, the, the composability is key, um, and you typically find different types of databases, as you guys mentioned, that you have smaller teams. And it, it, is, it is not realistic to say that a, a, a two-man pizza team uh, that need to provide, I don't know, uh, specific service that they will uh, by default use database xyz mm -hmm. because it has whatever 
um, type of features, right? It's like, it's gonna be a mixture of all kinds of things. And, and the idea typically is, is that the developer knows best what he uh, or she needs uh, from a storage layer, uh, from a data consistency aspect. We, we briefly touched on the cap theorem. So it really, 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 really depends. And that's why you can't make a system that um, does everything very well. Uh, you should to give the tools to build a, a system that you know uh, allows you to solve your problem very well, but not necessarily dictate like you know this is all things to all men, uh, and 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 you know walk away because that just doesn't work. Uh, I think that's a great point, and we may have to make a quote out of that one. Oh, two, that's two <laughs> quotes already. Uh, I need to get. Uh... <laughs> Or a t-shirt. <laughs> or a t-shirt. Yeah. Yeah. We, we need a we need a friends don't let friends shard t-shirt. I think that's gonna be yeah. Actually, I have a, I have that on a Cassandra shirt. Um, it's an old one. We did a contest, and somebody like that's the shirt we need. Is like uh, it was. I don't. I'm not sure if that was the exact quote, but it was something along the line of friends don't let friends shard. Yeah. Oh no, so, scaling doesn't have to be shard. Okay. Oh. Mm. So that might be the next iteration. And for those that are, are just listening and they're not actually watching, Bart has replaced his oh, no, 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 no. Mexican Compliment ponchos. Complimented my name. <laughs> He's complimented his Mexican worry, poncho worry, with some data on Kubernetes shirts and swag that we've got. So uh, as we mentioned in the beginning, if you want some, reach out to us on the Slack and we'll send you some your way because uh that's how we do swag these days it's like that you can't come by a booth but you get to talk to us on slack so now jeffrey i mean you're making some great points i just wanted you to tack on a little bit of that idea of the options and how teams are really like i know there's a lot of talk about loosely coupled teams and how the ability of choosing where you want your storage to be like and how you want to do your storage um just yeah. how you look at that i uh, yeah well i i think this this isn't necessarily just related to storage uh per se obviously i i work on on storage related products but i think um one of the the key things between uh these these see systems getting are so big and so complex that it is impossible to comprehend the whole thing at a, at a high level. I mean, and this is not even true necessarily for distributed system. If you look at the, the most well-known monolithic piece of software, the Linux kernel, it's like they have lieutenants or, or captains, whatever they call themselves for each individual subsystem and he or she is responsible for that. And there's the circle of trust, right? And, and, and if you look at uh, how software in, in cloud native environments is built. It's, it's typically the same. You have you have you know you have a task that you need to do, and you provide an interface, and you provide a certain SLA, or you're you're deemed to provide a certain SLA for that particular service. So I think one of the fundamental thing is things is that you need to have clear interface boundaries and well documented interface boundaries and well tested interface boundaries. And without those interface boundaries, you cannot create an operator in Kubernetes. It will just create more pandemonium in the system. It doesn't help. You need to have consistent and valid well, uh, tested interfaces. And then on top of that, you, you can basically build whatever you want. And if the interface is, 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 is abstracted properly, you, you, can, you can flip the engine mid-flight as long as the interface stays the same and provides the same contract 
you're good to go. And, and that's, that's very simply said, obviously, but far more difficult to do, of course, because all kinds of, um, you know, implications uh, are, are just, you know, hand waved away. Um, but it, it's, it's one of the patterns uh, I see somewhere, or at least in the Netherlands, and I won't say that we're really good at IT necessarily, but um, strangler patterns are, are used a lot where they try to roam off an old database, but they don't really know what data is in there or who uses it. But, you know, let's, let's, let's encapsulate it with the service, make a, you know, tight service such that we can track what goes in and out. And, you know, after three years, we'll just turn off the switch. And if nobody screams, it's okay. Right. It's like these systems are, are, are acquired by acquisitions and whatnot. And, and, you know, it's like, how do you make, how do you fix that mess? And, and how can you, um, maintain these these new GDPR rules and whatnot if you don't even know what type of data is in there to begin with, right? It's like it's not like you invented it. You came in and, you know, it breaks in your lap and you have to deal with it. So, um, yeah, I, I think that that's, that's, that's key, right? So, so small things, um, observable things, testable things, um, and, and clear interface boundaries between them and contracts, if you will. And uh, if you do that, then you should be able to, to jump in any... Uh, DevOps shop and say, okay, what do you need from me? This is what I want, you know, is there a particular demand, like a deadline? It's always going to be, yeah, fast, right? But how fast um, depends. Um, and and I think I think that that's key. And, and, and what the actual individual developer does to uphold to the, to the, you know, agreement you made should be completely irrelevant. Obviously, there are some governing rules like data governing and, and whatnot. But other than that, it's like, your show man as long as it works i don't care all right patrick um i listened to a podcast earlier from sam ramji the chief strategy officer at data stacks he was he was talking about how he likes to um personify um cassandra as a woman and so referring her to that way if if we talk about cassandra as a woman or as a person i guess you should say as, as a human being what are the conditions that will be necessary for Cassandra to get on Kubernetes? Um, what what is it going to be need to be taken? What kind of or are you bridging what, that together? That's what, really cool. What kind of, what, <laughs> well, no, I got I got really inspired listening to that because he was on the Google for Kubernetes uh, podcast and we was talking about that. And yeah. I was thinking about you know like if we're putting it in that sense, what are the necessary conditions in terms of openness and readiness that are going to get Cassandra well functioning on Kubernetes? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, first of all, Cassandra being a great mythological character is fraught with tons of baggage. You know, uh, Cassandra was the uh, oracle that no one believed. <laughs> you know, it's like, good she, mascot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but she was right. But she was right. <laughs> you know? But she was right. Yeah, that's the thing. Actually, there was kind of a tongue in cheek. There's a little backstory. There was a tongue in cheek joke by... Um, Avinash, who was one of the original, he was a founder or builders of original builders of Cassandra that, you know, it's like, it was, it, he, um, she also foretold the, the doom of the Oracle. It's a database joke. All right. It's a database dad joke. It's really bad. Um, and you were an Oracle guy, so you know. <laughs> whoa, man. Yeah. We're just going to wrap that right up. Um, so I think your question, so <laughs> dad jokes aside, um, your, your question is about what is it about Cassandra that's going to make it a Kubernetes database? Yeah. What are the uh, things that are necessary um, to, to get Cassandra ready to be comfortable, to, to be running uh, functionally and openly on Kubernetes? I'm glad you asked because we've already started that process by um, 
modularizing. So we use a, in the Cassandra project, we use these things called CEPs, um, Cassandra Enhancement Process. Um, and they're just how we propose new large scale features instead of just dropping a ton of code or, or opening a JIRA and saying, I got a great idea and I'm, here's my code. Um, we, we have more structure around how do we advance the project like big things that are changing. Um, there are several CEPs and there will be more coming around building more modularity into the system. Um, as I mentioned right now is when you deploy Cassandra, um, you know, you can choose anything you want as long as it's local file system. <laughs> and that's, that's great. <laughs> Did you want a local file system? Great. That's the choice. Um, and the storage system is the, is what is built into Cassandra as well. Now, Instagram has, um, has kind of taught us a different way, which is thanks, not just because they teach us how to do social media, but Instagram has integrated RocksDB with Cassandra in this thing they call Roxandra. Um, that opened up a lot of doors when people are hmm, thinking about how that works. So modularity and storage is one of them. Um, being able to provide a variety of database or a storage choices below the line. So if you think about like again, network, compute, storage. Network is the API layer. Like, how are we going to do this? Um, we've started an open source project called Stargate, which uh, is out there, which is basically abstracting the API layer above the compute side of Cassandra. So it uh, Stargate allows for things like REST, GraphQL, gRPC, document, whatever API you want to use to access your Cassandra compute layer. And then in Cassandra project, we're talking we're like uh, being able to do pluggable storage. So instead of just using the, what we call the 8099 engine, which is the, the only engine you can use, the storage engine you can use at Cassandra, being able to bring your own. So maybe it's something like a RocksDB or something like that. Um, so, and there's, there are a lot of choices to use. So I, all of these things, the punchline is that we will be able to use those in um, and compose them in different ways in a system like Kubernetes. Very, very good. Jeffrey, anything to add to that? Any thoughts, reflections? Well, I, I think that there is uh, one thing that's, that's I, 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 well, it depends a little bit. Uh, I always say that it depends. It's a little bit of annoying, but it is actually really true. But one of the things that is, is, is not obviously clear is this like, what is the behavior of the system when resource constraints come into play? And is, this ties back into uh, Litmus, as, as you mentioned before, because you know when you have a new Kubernetes cluster, everything is honkadori. But when, when things start to shape up like at random and badly, it's like, which application gets to suffer first? And, and, and how do I control what gets suffered uh, or sacrificed uh, first? And I think that that's, that's something that uh, needs to be uh, looked out for. And I think there is, there was this, uh, I'm not sure if it's still the case, but you saw a lot of uh, Kubernetes clusters that had a specific function, right? It's like, this is my Kubernetes cluster that runs Cassandra, and this is my Kubernetes cluster that runs whatever, right? Um, and I think that keep, keeping a, 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 a a system that that constantly is able to monitor and, and, and advise you to a certain extent about 
the state of the system and what, what's, what its breathing room is in terms of network saturation, disk saturation, and CPU saturation and whatnot. Um, because right now it's, it's, it's pretty, it's only during scheduling. Um, and um, if you have uh, a system that needs to, I don't know, rebalance or, or, or do some checksumming or Merkle trees, Cassandra uses Merkle trees, for example. Wow, that's, that's really cool, right? Or at least they used to, I'm not sure if they still do. And that's really, really cool, but it, it, it's not cheap, right? I mean, you have to, yeah, you have to do some CPU work, which is fine, but how do you size it out? How do you uh, get the bandwidth uh, correct? And, and I think, um, yeah, again, the, the right tooling uh, is important and, and validation uh, through Litmus, but it's not all that obvious when you start out. Uh, deploying your application, like what it will grow into. Um, and, and, and that is uh, very difficult uh, to assess. And, and um, even so with, with uh, distributed databases as well, because as you lay out the data in certain table formats, you anticipate the data to be queried in a certain way, but well, it turns out that two years down the line, you were wrong, right? It's, it's very difficult. Um, hmm. So yeah, I, I, I think it's, it's, it's a good thing because it, that gives us job security, right? I mean, after all, software engineers should really just make sure that they have a job by, by adding random bugs and, 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 and making no code comments, <laughs> right? Uh, it's like, how do you, that's how you do it. Um, but yeah, I, I think um, I'm diverging a bit, but yeah, I, because, because the question was, is like, what is it that you would need to, what is it that you need to have in order to run uh, Cassandra on Kubernetes, right? And I think that um, obviously storage, storage composability, um, Cassandra itself, obviously, but then also it's like, what do you do uh, when the kubelet decides to kill your pod and or, or you know, you screwed up your YAML, for example, how do you validate that? And I think that that's um, very, very important to consider as well. I'll help you with this one, Jeffrey, is, is how about some consistent storage, you know, and, and, and storage that's better suited for Kubernetes? Um, you know, I, I think that, that is one of the things that uh, Evan um, and I first started talking about in, with regards to OpenEBS and Maya data was, you know, right now the choices for storage in, in Kubernetes um, are kind of bring what you, whatever you got you know, it's in it, or it had been like, well, just glue in this thing you had laying around and it'll be fine, right? Um, creating purpose built Kubernetes version storage is just really important at this point. You should be able to ask for storage with a certain level of quality. And if you're not getting it, then you should not take it. Um, and, you know, up to this point, if you're running your you know, WordPress website on Kubernetes, yeah, storage is kind of like, whatever, you need to store some GIFs, right? That's no big deal. But now that we're getting into like, no, 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 this is like mission critical, totally different game. You yeah. need to have that. Yeah, exactly. Or, or what about the situation where you have some data somewhere and it wasn't considered mission critical, but all of a sudden it is, <laughs> it's like, what do you do, right? So yeah, and, and, and I think that that's, that's, that's key, right? The, the, the software is not solving right. your problem, but the software provides you the tools to, to think about your problem and to use the software to solve that problem. Um, and um, yeah, I think composability is, is key for sure. 
Um, and I've actually, uh, I went to several conferences and, and you know, all storage people, I, I wouldn't recommend them necessarily, but um, then you have these, these companies like, you know, like eBay and, and uh, Alibaba and then, you know, like these hyperscalers, right? And they, 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 they kind of do an interesting model where they, they do everything differently than we do now, right? So what we're trying to do now, they've, they've done that, you know, not a good idea, move on, right? This, so this whole notion of put everything and everything will just work fine on the same box. The economics don't work out, right? It's like, if you build, if, if you need storage, it's better to size a box with, I don't know, one U, two U with a petabyte of NVMe and eight core CPU and practically no memory. Right, because you don't need that memory in that storage box because the caching is typically done at the page cache of the operating system where where the, where the kernel runs um, or the application runs and uh, caching over the network doesn't really make sense. So, so you see my point. It's like the, the, the economics don't don't work out and they just scale by by like a fixed amount of resources. And if you need more resources, the key trick is to figure out when you would probably need to order some. Right, and and that's that's instrumental being able to grow, uh, and then obviously having the right uh, infrastructure. But it's very interesting to see that um, the um, the hyperscalers have segregated storage where they have very specific uh, clusters handling storage. And I think uh, one of the uh, key things uh, I would like to achieve personally, you know, despite uh, what. Uh, others may think, but being able to build a storage system just like any other, right? But it's just managed through good old cube CTL, and it is not cuddle; it is CTL. Just look at, at that straight, um, and uh, you know that's the only thing you really need. It's like the universal control plane, and and and, and as I started out, so, so storage is just software for the most part. Sure, there is hardware on 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 the, the media itself, but contains a whole lot of software again as well. So it, it, it shouldn't be that difficult. Um, obviously, uh, networking is a bit of a problem though, um, but you know, that's a networking problem, not ours. <laughs> yeah, so I have a, a question on this for the both of you. And I know we're kind of getting a little bit over time, um, but it but it's seems round like two, it's gotta all, be longer than round one. Yeah, and, and it then, seems like we're all clear for another few minutes to, to do this. Now, as far as, because Jeffrey, you made such a good point where it's like, in the beginning, things are really shiny. Just like any new toy, it's really nice. You play with it, it's fun, it works. It's all good. And then after a few years, you can't really predict the way that it's going to grow. And so I'm just wondering if you all can share some experiences with us on how to better manage that growth and how to scale in a proper way, or just what are some things that you've seen scaling so that we don't get into a mess like Jeffrey just described. So maybe Patrick, you want to have a first swing at this and then we'll get back to Jeffrey on it. Hmm. Well, uh, don't use a database that you have to do a forklift upgrade on. That's for sure. <laughs> don't use anything you have to do a forklift upgrade. If you don't know what your scaling is going to be in the future and the answer is going to be export and import into something or have downtime, bad answer. Um, 
I, I think another one that is actually this is more contemporary in the Kubernetes world now. Um, I see a lot of this energy of just throw an auto scaler on everything, put it on automatic. Well, that is, you know, and, and I get it. I, you know, it's like, oh, I don't get woke up in the middle of the night because my database is overloaded or my web servers are crashing. Web servers can do that pretty well because it's, you know, it's fairly stateless. I'll say fairly. <laughs> so, but, um, but I mean, it's just like you throw that up and it handles the load. As long as you have it elastic in that regard, but put limits on it. But I, I've talked to folks about like, how do I put an autoscaler with Cassandra? I'm like, that is just a bad idea. And I've done that before um, in like an Amazon with an uh, autoscale group, ASG. But what you wind up seeing, is, and this is not what you want, is you want to manage your workloads more effectively. So this is where you get into observability. Um, if, you're, if you're not managing a workload by making sure you know what's happening, um, you get into this really bad, a bad thing can start happening. You start growing your cluster automatically. So you'll wake up in the morning, go to work and show up. And you all of a sudden you have 50 new clusters in your database because you got DDoSed overnight. And <laughs> instead of getting alerted and stopping the traffic at the router or something like that, um, you, there's this law of unintended consequences. So I'm... Um, so there's there's been discussion in our groups about like should we add an autoscaler to uh, the Cassandra operator, and I'm vehemently against that <laughs> right now. Very interesting. And so Jeffrey, I, I kind of went down the anti-pattern route there. <laughs> That's all good. I expect nothing less from you. All right. <clears throat> Yeah, it's it, it, it's it's a it's a very difficult uh, question, and I, I think uh, one of the key aspects uh, is that you need to have a system that is observable, and um, in a dynamic sense. So dynamic instrumentation. I, I see a lot of the uh, you know uh, rest calls that give status and some statistics, but 99% of the time they don't give you the statistics that you need when you actually have a problem because when you uh, we're writing the software, you didn't anticipate the problem. And if you would have, you would not have a problem to begin with, right? So you need to be able to dynamic instrument, uh, instrument the system. Um, and then you need to have the ability to do something about that. And, and in terms of storage capacity, which is relatively simple and easy to reason about, but it, it, it's not just the capacity. The sizing aspect is not just capacity. It's also the, the CPU needs to have enough bandwidth to saturate the, the storage systems and whatnot. So being able to get an early warning uh, about uh, the, the issues that play uh, to the person that is responsible for it is, 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 is very important. Um, and I think also um, another thing that you know personally annoys me a bit, to be honest with you, is, is, the, is the, the, the sheer amount of, of analytics that applications produce or basically, I don't know what I'm doing, just log it to the console, right? And, and then you need to have these, this whole infrastructure that analyzes that data. I, I really don't get it. I would rather like it to be more like a diagnosed problem, right? It's like the software says, I have a problem. This is what has happened. This is the reason why it has happened. This is what you should do to solve it. Right, that's useful information. Just just spewing something to the console that you have an error doesn't. And help. we're going to have a discussion on AI ops here shortly. I can feel. It. Oh, <laughs> well, yeah. yeah, well, it's like yeah, it's like artificial intelligence. Yeah, maybe um, you know, it's it's more like, you know, it's like think about it a little bit more. But 
the the so being able to 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 observe the environment and and then be able to do something about it and i think one of the things that a lot of people don't think about when they start to deploy pvcs is they they don't give a split second about what file system they are using because it is absolutely important what type of file system you use and most people will use the default whatever that is right but it can paint you in a corner rather quickly because some file systems don't allow you to grow the file system online for example which brings me to another thing is like the file system do you actually need a file system and you see certain environments where they try to shoehorn legacy infrastructure, which is older than, than I am, into a cloud native environment and then expect it to work and then want to go through Kubernetes and um, things like that. But it, it, it's like a recipe for disaster, really, if you ask me. If you, if you need like legacy file share protocols, I won't name them, um, and you try to put that in an in a, in a environment where um, you have multiple root users, let's say, you get into this, this ID mapping problem, right? It's like, so what do you do? Well, you open it up for everybody. Basically, everybody has access to this uh, you know, export. And then the problems start because then you cannot reason about security and then you get into file locking issues and whatnot and opportunistic locking. So um, that's another thing to consider is, is pick the right type of storage that you need. So it, it, it's block um, object, um, and if you really must then file, but typically I would not necessarily recommend file in cloud native environments at all. Mm -hmm. And then from a performance tier, typically, you know, it's flash or trash. You either need to be real fast or it, it doesn't really matter, right? And typically that doesn't really matter. It goes to the object type like storage systems. Um, but um, it is important though, that you, that you don't pick a distributed object store that can scale infinitely, right? Because then it will take down your whole Kubernetes cluster at one blow. So you do need the, you know, the abstraction layer on top where you can move your data left and right or, or route it, if you will. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm not sure if I uh, answered the question, actually. actually. I think perfect. it's funny that we're here talking about what we're talking about now is like the problem is it's too easy to scale. <laughs> because then you get yourself into trouble <laughs> like yeah. uh, oh wait you know it's like way too much candy in front of kids or something it's like now we have a new problem it's not we don't have candy we have too much <laughs> yeah well yeah. yeah but that's one of the actually one of the primary motivators that we that we uh, started the whole open ebs project is is we we saw that uh, i i had a, another um, nobody has ever printed a t-shirt of that, but I used to say that applications have changed and somebody forgot to tell storage, right? Because the scalability and high availability of your application as a whole, whatever type of layers you have, isn't necessarily dictated by the storage that is underneath. Because it used to be VMware, some storage system, and that storage system had a multi-million dollar ticket on it uh, because it can never fail, right? And, and nobody could touch it. And it was always uh, a battle between uh, the infrastructure management, network management, and storage management. And as now as these things come together where you're basically responsible for the whole thing, um, you see that certain things at storage you don't have to do. In, in, for example, let's take Cassandra. Well, we don't have to do the replication. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't do or can't do or help you with other things that make your life easier from a storage management perspective, but we don't have to do that. Right, so it, it opens opportunities uh, in certain cases, um, and um, yeah, I think it's always um, important to, to start out with a fresh look, and 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 for sure, don't paint yourself to a corner by putting everything through CSI 
on a specific system and think it's all handled because your Kubernetes cluster will just crash like, like any other application if the storage system that you put it all on is, is crashing. So, hmm. um, yeah, I think that's a great point of, of this idea that, and this has been echoed many times in meetups when we've talked to people about like one of the things that people say is don't forget to put your toys away. Or another thing is like, how is it even possible that now we can, it, there exists such a thing as a $40,000 query, right? Like there, this scale that we have, and like you were saying, Patrick, is that we're talking about, it's so easy to scale now, we have to be very conscientious of that. Uh, and so I know Bart's got some cool stuff to show us. Uh, I, got, I, I, got, I got one question because uh, it was funny earlier, uh, Jeffrey, you mentioned about how in the Netherlands you don't do IT well. Well, the audience is listening, and we have. Well, a, no, no, no. I didn't say that necessarily. No, no, no. Just kidding. It's okay. But one of our good friends in the community, Ari, is from uh, Rotterdam, and mm -hmm. so he he chimed in. And anyway, but jokingly, he was also here talking about costs. But he kind of had a, a question for the two of you. But since uh, Patrick, since we we asked you previously about you know the conditions being right for for Cassandra to be running on Kubernetes. With having an underlying layer like OpenEBS, what impact does that have on Cassandra for its ability to, to do exactly that, to run on Kubernetes? That's what I already wanted to ask. And if you can say uh, something nice about Dutch people and their tech level, that would be very helpful too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I mean, let's see, what am I gonna say the nice about Dutch people? Hang on from this. No, I'm kidding, no. Um, Double overtime. No, I've spent a lot of time in the Netherlands. There's a lot of great community members in the uh, Cassandra community members. Like ING is one has been such a good community member in Cassandra land. Um, I've done a lot of meetups in Amsterdam. <laughs> um, but I think besides holding back large bodies of water, like number two is IT in Netherlands. I mean, I, I'm, I have to disagree with Jeffrey. <laughs> so there you go. Um, so what is what is OpenEBS going to bring? It's a consistent storage. That's that that's what I was talking about. Um, it has been a tragedy of when you don't know what you got below the storage line. When you say, "Here, create me a, a persistent volume set," and, and oh, here's my claim on God knows what. And that's that's I, that's what I really started getting to know OpenEBS. You know, that's where I was learning about is. Here's a class of storage that I actually need for a database. I think it's really critical. And that's that's that mature maturation of Kubernetes where it's not just anything you got. It's bespoke. It's a storage layer for data. Um, Evan, who's, I believe he's a founder or co-founder, uh, Jeffrey will tell me. <laughs> um, when, when I first started talking to him about like, what is it about data on Kubernetes? Well, we need a storage for data on Kubernetes because that that is you can make or break your entire Cassandra life based on storage. That's just the bottom line. So, yeah, there's some truth. <laughs> that is yeah, that, that's another T-shirt. 
That's yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, just just to come back on the Dutch IT, I think Dijkstra is, is well known. Uh, Tannenbaum is famously well known to uh, set Linus Torvalds straight, right? Because he should have gone for the microkernel approach, which, by the way, nobody talks about that. But I actually think it makes sense to reconsider that with all those multiple cores. Um, <laughs> and then uh, maybe you guys heard about NixOS, which is a declarative operating system. You know, takes your uh, Anyway, I feel like you're being uh, super defensive uh, at this point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, just like, did you just did you just Google all of that? <laughs> no, I, 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 Python probably. If somebody heard about that too, no. But in all seriousness, I I think so. But 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 for for uh, in 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 the Cassandra case in particular, one of one of the things that we try to do is is make sure that we we don't necessarily make decisions for you and and give you an opportunity to slice and dice it the way you want. And that's a little bit the gift and the curse because you, there are so many, many ways to, to do it uh, wrong. Uh, but working with, with uh, guys like Patrick who, who know the database inside out, and for example, it became rather clear that based on you know, the, the, the traits of the database itself, you, you probably wanna have these types of storage classes and OpenEBS can provision uh, several types uh, of systems. So I, I work mostly uh, myself from a day-to-day -day, uh, operation on, on NVMe related stuff, but you know, guess what? There are a lot of, a lot of probably more than NVMe right now, uh, environments that, you know, don't care about that at all. And they need a reliable local storage system that is provisioned through Kubernetes and that, and the database can pick up. And so we, 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 we can do that. Um, and, and I think that that's one of our strengths is that we, we, we don't, um, force you to take a particular uh, pill uh, that we think is right for everybody. Um, so. so I've got one last question and we're going way over and I thank everyone that's still with us and, uh, and the both of you for being great sports about this, but the conversation is too good and I can't cut it off. I'm, I had, I actually have 50 more questions for you all, but we're not going to get through those. So I chose my, most important question or my favorite question that I really want to finish with, because when we spoke the first time, Patrick, uh, we talked about this and then we actually, I tried to make a, a blog post out of this, but then Google lost it. And so it's been deleted forever. And that's another story. Uh, but <laughs> we talked about operating. That really happened. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now we're just talking story, but we talked about operators creating technical debt and the idea of operators, maybe not being the most, the best way to go about things. And so I'm wondering how you feel about that still. Is it still something where you're like, yeah, operators, uh, they're not good, but they're what we've got. And I just like ask a lot of people, what's the alternative? How can we go about this and make uh, something where there's no operators, or is that just something that we have now and we're not, we're never going to get out of it in Kubernetes? Yeah, well, operators are application middleware for Kubernetes. You know, they're just like, how do we translate our layers? And so when when you get to the point where you you have a native service inside of Kubernetes, you no longer really need an operator. That I think that's like that's your graduation present. Um, <laughs> so if you look at uh, where I think some projects are going, um, like there's no there's no operator for Envoy, <laughs> there's no operator for Istio. Uh, it's a primitive, and this is what I've been advocating pretty hard in the Kubernetes project is we need to have more primitives for data. 
And um, it, yeah, operators, you know, they, they glue us into the future with the, with the past. But um, I think that'll be when I come on to DOK and I say, we no longer use an operator in the Cassandra project. That'll just, you know, we can like just pause and drop the mic. <laughs> that's when the audience will start yeah. clapping. Oh, damn. That's, that sounds like it's native, cloud native all the way. Yes. When, yes, it is. When I hear operator, operators, I always have to think of this, uh, this very good series from, I think it was HBO uh, Chernobyl. Uh, where it is, you know, uh, this, uh, these these poor young men were were in front of this, you know, operator, and they just had to switch, you know, turn the dial, and boy, that went wrong rather quickly. Um, so, I think w one of the problems with operators, I think, is is that um, it's another abstraction, and before you know it, you're so far, you know, away from what it actually is, is that the abstraction comes more true than the actual thing that it tries to abstract. Um, so it is, it is certainly not, uh, you know, the default thing to fix. And, and I think I, I mentioned it before is like, you have to have the good abstractions in place for, for your application itself. And then sure, you can build an operator on top of it. But I, I, I don't think a universal operator for any type of system will work because if you, if you compare it to a factory, right, because, you know, that's where the operators originally originated from, I suppose, is that every factory is somewhat different, right? And, and if you're making diapers, you, you, it doesn't really help to have an operator that is used to make baby milk, right? Even though that underneath, they both use Cassandra. It's like the, the dimensions are somewhat different. So it, it, it's, yeah. Uh, output is different. Yeah, 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 um, yeah I hope yeah. so. And, and Jeffrey, Jeffrey, be careful, be careful, because we're making animated videos about metaphors regarding data on Kubernetes, and oh, now boy. we've got milk and diapers. So <laughs> yeah, well, it shows the story of my life. Yeah, I got one is you know, done with the milk and almost out of the diapers, so top of mind, yeah. Wait until you get to car. Yeah, that gets expensive. You know, diapers yeah. are cheap. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that's enough about me. <laughs> nice. Well, I know that we've had um, Angel here with us. We started this trend last week, and we have an incredible graphic designer that has been sketching the both of you. And I think there may be a way. Bart, can you share your screen and show us what he's come yep, up with? I'm going to share my screen right now. All um, right. Let's see what let's... he created over the course of this chat. All right. Can you guys see? Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, I got to say that. I got it. Yeah, he's really good. I got to say right now. Wow. He's, he's very humble. I got to say right off the bat that, you know, the English isn't his first language. So we had to kind of translate things on the go. We were kind of chatting back and forth. Um, so anyway, I'll, I'll put this in the Slack. We'll obviously put it on Twitter. We'll put it on LinkedIn. Uh, but we think it's just a nice way to sort of try to encapsulate a lot of things that we talked about. Obviously, there are a lot of things that we didn't get to. Um, so I'm pretty confident there's going to be around three. There's going to be around three in, uh, in 2021. Um, we will have to, we'll have to schedule that as soon as we can, because there are a lot of stuff. There was a lot of stuff we didn't get to. Um, uh, but anyway, yeah, it's just a, it's just a, it's a way of, uh, of giving a different, giving a different flavor to, to what this community is about, about connecting people, ideas, um, sharing things, and 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 building something together. So yeah, wow, it's really really nice. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty really impressed. good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow, it's, it's like when you're like you see the street artist who like they're like, and then it's like 
here you go. And it's like this perfect photo. Like you just did that right in front of me. I know, I know, I know, I know. So good. Why are you on the street doing this? Or why are you on a DOK hangout doing this? (laughs) (laughs) You got to up your game, bro. No, come on. Uh, Amazing. Well, I thank you both. I thank all of you for being here with us and talking about this because this is super useful information that I know I am not the only one that finds a lot of value in this. And I could have gone on for another couple hours. I'm sure that few of us could have, but at some point, all good things must end. And it looks like now is the ending. I really want to give a shout out to everyone that asked questions and also Angel for this incredible uh, drawing at the end here. So if you want to jump in our community, we'll leave a link to that in the description below if you are listening in the future. And other than that, have a great day, night, wherever you are in the world. We will see you all later. Thank you guys so much. Thank you, guys. It was, it was, uh, it was real fun. Thanks. Perfect. <clears throat> Bye-bye. Bye-bye.